Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Greetings, and thanks for joining us today for another episode of A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Today we're bringing you another episode in our Great Captain series, and today we get a two-for-one deal as we're going to discuss a Great Captain's team, that of Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson, who were generals for the Confederate States of America in the American Civil War. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Chris Keller, who is a professor of history in the Department of National Security and Strategy and is also the Dwight D. Eisenhower Chair of National Security at the U.S. Army War College. Chris is an expert in the history of the American Civil War and is currently finishing a book about Lee and Jackson titled The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy, which will be published in July of 2019 with Pegasus Books. Thanks for joining us here today at the War Room, Chris. Hi, Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so usually on the Great Captains series, we're talking about an individual. That's sort of the point. Um, So why are we talking about two people today? Well, there are two reasons. And the first you alluded to in your introduction, uh, and uh, that is that we're talking about a team here uh, with Lee and Jackson. Uh, the two were at their best when they were working together, and the great victories of the Army Northern Virginia, uh, the offensive victories particularly, were uh, won with the Lee Jackson command team along with, with others. And the other big reason why we're talking about two uh, is because uh, both of them were uh, leaders in their own right at all levels of war. And one of the main points of my book is highlighting that Jackson was also a strategic level thinker. Uh, even if he did not command at the strategic level as Lee did. But, all, uh, but, but these two men were active at all three levels of war and were leaders at uh, all three levels. So it's good to talk about both of them, and I think our uh, listeners may be surprised uh, to learn some things about uh, Jackson and his uh, strategic level thinking. Okay, so let's jump in and think about each of them uh, sort of individually for a moment. Who, um, who are they? And what do we need to know about their background or their biography in order to make sense of them? Robert E. Lee is probably very familiar to many of our listeners as uh, the great leader of the Army Northern Virginia, which uh, he took over in June 1862 after Joseph E. Johnston was uh, wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines outside of Richmond. Uh, And uh, Stonewall Jackson, probably also familiar to many of our listeners, Uh, would be his uh, primary lieutenant, his uh, uh, right arm, as Lee came to to call him uh, after the Battle of Chancellorsville. Lee and Jackson both uh, are West Pointers. Uh, They both had fought in the Mexican War. Uh, Lee had a slightly higher rank than Jackson. Uh, Jackson came from the uh, West Virginia area uh, of of the country, uh, what is now modern-day West Virginia, it was backcountry Virginia at the time, uh, and he struggled at West Point, whereas Lee uh, didn't struggle nearly as much, graduated near the top of his class, as uh, many people know, uh, was superintendent later at West Point. Uh, Jackson was professor at VMI 
in Lexington. And the two did rub shoulders uh, throughout the antebellum period at various times, but uh, they, they knew of each other, but they weren't friends. Uh, by the time of the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, uh, being both part of the cadre that Virginia naturally had of uh, officers in the state who had military experience, uh, they were both likely candidates for high command. Uh, Lee serves as uh, Jefferson Davis's uh, principal advisor uh, during the first year of the Confederacy, uh, and then later is the Johnny on the spot when uh, Johnston is wounded and, and Davis has no one to turn to but Lee, which was a lucky stroke for Confederate fortunes. Uh, Jackson earned his military reputation first at uh, the Battle of uh, First Manassas or First Bull Run, where he stood like a stone wall, and hence okay, so his nickname. Okay, so that's where the name comes from? Exactly. It comes from his performance at, at the Battle of First Manassas, where uh, the arrival of his Valley Brigade stabilized the uh, Confederate line and ultimately set the stage for a Confederate victory in the first great land battle of the Civil War. Okay, so how do the two then link up and become this command team, essentially? Well, it's an interesting story. I trace it in the book. Uh, Jackson will have his Valley campaign in the spring of 1862. He's quasi-independent in his command there, uh, has a small army, never numbers more than Mm -hmm. 17,500, and commences what uh, most scholars think was one of the most brilliant uh, uh, operations in American military history, uh, and uh, is able to defeat, defeat... several Union armies sent to bag him at this time. Uh, He was seen as a threat to Washington by the uh, Union authorities. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was very preoccupied with getting rid of Jackson. So Jackson earns his national-level respect uh, beyond that first Manassas stand during the Great Valley Campaign, particularly in June of 1862. Now, this brings him very quickly to the attention of Robert E. Lee, uh, who is now in transition from being uh, Davis's advisor to becoming the uh, new commander of what will be called the Army Northern Virginia, which is the main Southern Army defending Richmond at the time. Lee will advise Jackson during the Valley Campaign, and they're in frequent communication, though they, they don't meet. Okay. And uh, Lee is, uh, is, is giving Jackson quite a few of his ideas, and later on, after the war, went down on the record in a post-war interview saying that nothing Jackson did was without my direction. Um, and scholars have debated that, uh, but we see already uh, the uh, beginnings of a command team between these two, even before they're actually physically together. Uh, Lee will call Jackson in to help him with his army, Uh, to relieve what is almost a siege of Richmond when George B. McClellan's Army of the Potomac uh, got within eyesight of the spires, the church spires of Richmond. Uh, Lee realizes he can't let Jackson in the valley anymore. Jackson wanted to go uh, into the north after his uh, successful valley campaign, and Lee considered that. He considered unleashing Jackson uh, across the Potomac River, but uh, ultimately he looked at his priorities, realized the defense of the capital uh, had to be done, calls Jackson in, and then they start working together for the first time in what will become known as the Seven Days, uh, the great battles uh, between Lee and McClellan, uh, ultimately resulting in McClellan's retreat down the peninsula. Jackson took part in those, and that was the first time Lee and Jackson collaborated. Okay. So one of the things when we think about teams, um, people often imagine that team members are, I guess, 
shoring each other's vulnerabilities up, right? That there's some synergy that happens that that doesn't happen individually for either one. Is that the case with Lee and Jackson? That's a very accurate way to describe uh, their relationship. Um, Lee was a a thinker at all levels of war. Uh, He was able to think at the national strategic level. Uh, He was uh, advisor to Jefferson Davis in a de facto sense after he takes command of the uh, Army of Northern Virginia, uh, which he he names it that after he takes command of it. Uh, He is therefore a theater commander, an army commander, and also the Confederate equivalent of the national security advisor all at the same time. he also will engage in tactical decision-making as mm-hmm. necessary throughout his, his military career as, as, as a Confederate chieftain. Jackson, once uh, he recovers from some bungling that occurred during the seven days, he's not at his best, mainly because he was exhausted from the Valley Campaign, and he had a lot of uh, heavy rides back and forth to meet with Lee at the advent of that campaign. It wore him out. Um, after the seven days campaign, uh, Jackson serves for Lee as his primary operator, relieving Lee of much of the uh, of the, the the how to Lee's what, um, and along with James Longstreet, a a team of teams is built. Uh, throw in Jeb Stuart for good measure, mm-hmm. and you've got a trio, what I call the Great Triumvirate, serving underneath Robert E. Lee. Lee's able to dwell then at the higher levels of strategy the higher levels of operations, and he lets his command team work out the kinks uh, on the how to his what, if you will. And that's the sign, I think, of a really good uh, leadership team when you can have that kind of uh, uh, symbiotic uh, uh, support and relationship among them. Longstreet is thinking at the strategic level as well. Stuart not quite as much, but Jackson is frequently serving as Lee's sounding board. And as the war progresses, uh, as... uh, the campaigns of 1862 uh, move forward. Uh, Lee turns to Jackson more and more for counsel, uh, especially when Longstreet is detached uh, for independent uh, duty in uh, South, si- South Side and Southeast Virginia during the winter of 1862-63. So these, these, these men, particularly Jackson, uh, who are Lee's direct subordinates, give Lee the ability to think more freely and more independently about the problems that he is facing. And and they are wicked problems. Uh, Lee and Jackson both realize that the Confederacy uh, is running short of means, national-level means. Uh, They both recognize that very early in the war. And they realize uh, together, though they come to this somewhat independently first, but then they collaborate on how to fix this problem, this this strategic conundrum. And this idea of conducting a primarily defensive uh, theater strategy in the East, in the Virginia theater, while going on the offensive operationally as much as possible, is really the brainchild of both of them. Okay. And Lee is able to look to Jackson to execute the, the hard, long marches, the, the sweeping flank movements uh, that will achieve those operational victories necessary to uh, 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 offset the strategic paucity and means that the Confederacy is facing. The idea is hit Northern public morale hard enough through a series of repeated Confederate victories that the Northern public will throw in the towel and say, this isn't worth it. It's not worth the the cost. Um, So it sounds like Jackson is able to execute in part because he 
shares a sort of common understanding with with Lee about what they're trying to accomplish. What what is it that Lee provides to Jackson uh, as the other sort of half of the team? Well, one thing that he provided, which I go into uh, great detail in the book about, is friendship. Uh, Jackson has this reputation as being kind of a stone-hearted killer uh, and as being very hard to get to know, uh, having funny foibles uh, and quirks. Uh, He's not terribly likable. Not Well, and that, that's the cliche, but the, the fact of the matter is there were two Stonewall Jacksons. There was the Jackson uh, who was the great warrior, uh, the great thinker, the great operator, uh, who could think at the strategic level. Uh, and, uh, and, and dare to d- dream some pretty serious dreams on, on how to achieve Confederate victory. Uh, then there's Jackson, uh, the kind-hearted, amiable uh, individual, uh, who we see emerge really for the first time in the winter encampment after the Battle of Fredericksburg, but before the Battle of Chancellorsville mm-hmm. in the winter of 62-63. And Lee very quickly found that he had uh, a kindred spirit in, in Stonewall Jackson. And uh, the record is, uh, the historical record is filled with examples of these two men sharing lighthearted moments. And it starts uh, before that winter encampment, but it really grows during that time. And the two are able to, uh, uh, to, to get along well. Uh, they share uh, a common providential evangelical Christian faith, which is a huge undergirding uh, to this friendship, Uh, and uh, they attend worship services together, therefore. They find they have much more in common than most people would ever realize, and certainly uh, there were observers of the time, uh, staff officers in particular serving under both men, who commented that essentially we have an odd couple here with Lee and Jackson. Who would have believed that the Episcopalian high-born aristocrat from the <laughs> Tidewater would uh, find uh, so much in common and enjoy the company of uh, the, uh, the orphan son of a hard-scrabble farmer from uh, northwestern Virginia uh, who uh, was not very high-born uh, but worked very hard. And the two together really had this symbiotic relationship like, that we like to see in command teams, and it was undergirded by a strong sense of friendship, uh, which was in turn undergirded by a strong sense of trust, which uh, the religious connection really assisted. It was important. So what, I think, to, to sort of wrap up this part of the conversation, um, if you were if you were writing, a, a say, a thesis statement, right, what is it that make Lee and Jackson a great captain's uh, team for you? It's their ability to simply understand what the other wanted. Almost like uh, Clausewitz's coup d'oeil, the idea where with the glance of the eye you know what you have to do. Lee did not have to spell out in punctilious detail what he wanted Jackson to do. He said, Jackson, I want you to do X. And Jackson was able to execute it. Uh, And he allowed Jackson to do it the way that Jackson wanted to do it. Moreover, Jackson felt completely free to offer his advice at all levels of war to Robert E. Lee without fear of being shot down and without fear of, of, of uh, uh, being seen as overstepping his bounds. Mm-hmm. There was this understanding that they could talk freely with each other. And it's a, it's a precious commodity when you have a command team like that. Uh, even James Longstreet didn't share that rapport with Lee, though he would later write that he did 
uh, but the historical record claims right. otherwise. Uh, and uh, this is truly a team of teams, one that if Jackson had not been uh, prematurely uh, shot down and, and knocked out of action, uh, could have led to any number of different contingencies. Sure. And I think this gets to one of one of the, the sort of last last issues is that Jackson dies early, uh, relatively early in the war. And so this this team is, is broken up and Lee um, Lee is, doesn't seem to be the same commander after Jackson is gone. Um, and it sounds like you would argue that, that that Jackson's death has something to do with that. Uh, unquestionably, it does. My research uncovered uh, a lot of primary sources of the time during the war itself that indicated uh, from President Davis to the Secretary of War, James Seddon, uh, to the high command of the Army Northern Virginia, uh, uh, the whole way down to uh, little children uh, in Virginia. Everybody in the Confederacy understood what the death of Jackson meant, not only for what it meant for Lee and his ability to command, uh, but also what it meant for the overall fate of the Confederacy, and that's why I have that second part of the title mm. of the book. I have a whole chapter that goes into how Jackson's death was reported throughout the Confederacy, and it was absolutely devastating. Uh, the m morale boost from the victory at Chancellorsville was really downgraded, and the jubilation over that was was muted because of the loss of Jackson. Uh, papers as far away as, as uh, Houston, Texas, mourned him, and they mourned him for weeks. It was the first great national mourning of a public figure uh, uh, in the American Civil War, and it, it is a foreshadowing in many ways of the grief that will be poured out after Lincoln's assassination. This was the Confederate's version uh, of, of that event. The mm -hmm. loss of Jackson was a national level event. It was seen as such at the time, and it absolutely devastated Lee. Uh, Lee, of course, more reserved in his feelings, uh, very rarely showed them, uh, but there is uh, much historical evidence that he was so broken up by Jackson's death uh, that he couldn't attend uh, the funeral uh, in, in Richmond. And uh, he was asked about this by some staff officers, and he said, I can't bring myself to do it. I know not how to replace him, he wrote to his brother Custis. Uh, he broke down in tears uh, in front of a mutual friend that they both uh, shared, William Nelson Pendleton, chief of artillery. Uh, and uh, Lee was not the same personally after this. And that's an important point, I think, for us to realize that when you have a symbiotic command team such as what Lee and Jackson shared, uh, when that team is broken, for whatever reason, and today it may not be uh, death uh, on active duty, it may be retirement, it may be dismissal, it could be any number of things, uh, it greatly affects the efficacy of the team to function and to be able to achieve the same things that it once achieved. Lee is not able to achieve what he uh, uh, could achieve with Jackson after uh, Chancellorsville, and of course, everyone will realize the strategic timing is just awful for the uh, for the South because they're about to embark on the Gettysburg sure. campaign, and to replace Jackson, Lee had to reshuffle his army, reorganize it, and he elevated two division commanders who had served under Jackson, uh, but only had a week and a half to get them up to speed to their new right. their new job, Ewell and Hill, and Jackson uh, was a different commander 
than Lee was. He was not intent-based. He wasn't mission command-oriented. He was the punctilious order-giver. And if you didn't follow those orders, you were put up on charges, which he actually did with A.P. Hill. Uh, Those gentlemen, therefore, are used to serving under Jackson, but now he's gone. And now they must serve under the intent order-based Lee, which is really one of the big reasons that the Confederates fail at Gettysburg. So you can see a series of events, the the stream of time uh, goes against the Confederacy after the loss of Jackson. I am not going to sit here and say that the South is going to lose because they lose Stonewall Jackson, but it definitely made... They were going to have a hard time of it. They were going to have a hard time of it anyway, and we know why, because of uh, outstanding union leadership at the presidential level and ultimately uh, uh, the the army uh, level with with Grant uh, and Sherman. Uh, But the loss of Jackson really makes the job a lot harder for the Confederacy to be able to overcome these uh, inherent difficulties. So can you talk to us um, just a little bit about what you think it means to call these two Confederate generals um, great captains? So right, many people consider them traitors to the United States. They find the cause that they fought for uh, to be morally repugnant. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a worthwhile question to think about what it means uh, if we identify them as great captains and, and how their cause um, should play into how we evaluate them. Well, it's a great question, Jackie, and the bottom line that I've, I've told everybody who's asked me a similar question is uh, answered by another question. Uh, do we not study the uh, great generals of uh, the Axis in the Second World War? Do we not study uh, the great campaigns of Napoleon? Uh, do we not study uh, the strategy of the North Vietnamese uh, in the Vietnam War? Uh, all these other causes which most Americans would find repugnant or distasteful uh, still give us insights from the past, particularly uh, leader relationships, uh, strategic thinking, uh, 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 the ability for uh, military leaders and and civilian leaders to get along in in good civil-military relationships. Uh, Just because the cause is morally repugnant does not mean that we can't learn from it. And that is why we need to continually look at uh, these causes, uh, whether it be Confederate, whether it be uh, uh, from the Axis powers of the Second World War, whether it be from from anything that that we today would find somewhat repulsive, for whatever reason, uh, we need to still look at these leaders and their decision-making if we're going to gain anything from this history. Uh, If we shunt aside issues in time, issues in history, regardless of what they may be, because we, we don't like them or we find that uh, the cause for which they fought was, was, was evil or wrong, we are doing ourselves, particularly uh, as educators of senior leaders and as senior leaders, we are doing ourselves a great disservice. Uh, you have to look at history holistically, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you've got to place it in its context. Uh, And as a professional historian, this is one of my primary jobs, uh, to place all discussions of history, particularly if we're going to draw applications for the modern day out of it, within the historical context. So there's my answer to that question. Great, thanks. To follow up on that last um, bit, if there were going to be one insight that contemporary students of military history might gain from an examination of Lee and Jackson, uh, what do you think? 
What do you think that key insight is? Well, I actually have an appendix in the book where I go into several key insights, but I think the number one that we need to be aware of is that at the highest level of leadership, the senior command teams, at the strategic, at the theater strategic, or the high operational level, there must exist a, a high level of trust uh, between the leaders of a given command team. They have to inherently trust each other and uh, know each other so well that they do have this ability, like Lee and Jackson did, to almost read each other's minds and to just understand what the other wanted. Uh, and to have the ability to freely offer counsel, offer advice, uh, the contrarian opinion. So important, I think, in the 21st century world that we live in now uh, with uh, everything that is complicated, all these wicked problems that we know we're facing, very significant that we're able to develop this level of trust. I think it will help expedite and raise in quality the decision-making of the future. Okay, so there's the challenge. Increase the level of trust at the highest levels of leadership to create these effective teams uh, who are making wise and sound decisions. So, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today on The War Room. Thank you very much, Jackie. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.